Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst. And if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. Let's jump in. All right, this is our third special episode on the Convergence Conference that we recently held here in Oklahoma City. We are going through uh, four of the keynote lessons that were given there where we were talking about the convergence of word and spirit and particularly about the God who heals. We talked about um, God the healer. Uh, We've already heard from Sam Storms two weeks ago on um, why God doesn't heal. And then last week we looked at uh, Michael Brown's keynote on Israel the Divine Healer. This week, we're going to be uh, joined by Andrew Wilson and his keynote, looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth about the time when God will heal everything, will heal ourselves, will heal our world. It was honestly one of the most encouraging and powerful and uplifting moments of the whole conference. I can't wait to share it with you. I hope you enjoy Andrew Wilson looking at the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to... We're going to figure a way to give you an honorary citizenship in the state of Oklahoma. Oh, Oklahoma. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm afraid I've, I've already taken quite a lot of okra jokes. I mean, probably a third of you have already had some. <laughs> Sorry about that. Do you want to turn to Revelation 22? Revelation chapter 22. This is, um, it's after lunch session. I'm going to do a little break in the middle of the session to keep us uh, awake and mindful but the promise of Scripture is that everybody gets healed in the end. We look, the, the, we say it in the Nicene Creed, and we look for the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Right? Everybody gets healed in the end. And Jesus is ruling until all his enemies are under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But at the moment, we find it very difficult to imagine a world without death. It's so much a part of our world that we just find getting our heads around the idea of a deathless concept behind, beyond our understanding, or at least I do, and most, I think most of us do, try and envisage a world without death and you can't quite make sense of it. I know this because I teach eschatology on a theological training course for pastors in the UK, and I'm continually getting questions like, what age are we going to be in the resurrection and will we recognize one another and how does it work if someone dies as a child how are you going to know who they would look like when they're in their 30s and are you going to be the 30 year old you that knew this person or the 80 year old you that knew that person people ask questions like that all the time and when they do i realize that what the reason that problem is caused is because we can't imagine a world without death so aging Sorry, this is an unpleasant remark for some of us who are at the upper end of life, but aging is basically a metric of your proximity to death, right? As you get nearer death, you age. That's what aging is. So we find the idea of a deathless world with no aging, like how on earth would you recognize people if there's no aging? How on earth would you, how can you function in a world like that? I teach eschatology on a 
course for gap year students as well. They ask slightly different questions. They're kind of more fun questions. So they ask things like, so are you saying in a deathless world, like I could, like matrix type questions, could I run, stand on the top of this building and then jump off and then land on the ground and not break my legs? That's what they want to know. And I'm like, that's cool. I wish that was, I want that still to be my question. And I'm always saying, yeah, yeah. But they can't make sense of it because even our bodies, our bone structure, I don't understand how the world could work without death. We are so shrouded by this enemy. It is so dominant over our concept of the world that our conceptions of aging, of time itself, of what it is to be a physical embodied person are almost impossible to separate from the concept of death. Isaiah 25 describes death as a covering that is over all people. So I need to imagine somebody in this room has thrown a giant tarpaulin over all of you. And you are now sitting, living under a tarpaulin. And after a while, you, when it initially happens, you think, what, what's happening? This is kind of smelly and dank and dark and unpleasant. But after a while, if it didn't get removed, you would get used to life under the tarpaulin, wouldn't you? You'd have to. You'd say, okay, so how are we going to make life work? We live under this tarpaulin now. This is the new normal. We're going to have to figure out how, we, how do we get food? How do we have family life? How do we do things under this tarpaulin? And you would get, and then your children and your children's children and so on would carry on into etern- or in infinitely, indefinitely. You'd be living under this tarpaulin to the point that people would have no concept that there ever was a world without it. And then Isaiah 25 says, on that day, on that mountain, he's going to swallow up the tarpaulin that has been cast over all peoples. He is going to swallow up death forever. And he's going to wipe away tears from every face. So Isaiah 25, 7 to 8 is telling me that this world I live in, covered as it is by the the unhealedness of the current world, the presence of death, is one day going to be swallowed up and that, that day I will be as unable to imagine a world with death as I currently am to imagine a world without it. And I'm going to be living then and I'm going to be, you know, it says Isaiah 65, the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So I'm going to be going, man, I don't... In the new creation, I had a weird dream last night. I had a dream that there were these things called pills. The world just went weird. There were these things called pills and these things called needles. And that sterile smell that you get when you walk down a hospital corridor, I'm like, I don't even know what a hospital is, but I had this weird reminiscence in my dream about a world in which hospitals were a thing. And sicknesses and coffins. Like, what is... I it was just this sort of fleeting dream, man. But I just... Don't, I remember having it and thinking, wow, that was so weird. And, and it's just like my mind was taken as if once upon a time, there were all of these things. There were funerals. There were other abominations as well, like traffic jams and bad weather and American cheese. Like the world... <laughs> and things like... Things like that used to exist. And then we turn to one another and say, was that real? Is that actually true? Or did I just have a, did the world seriously used to be like that with those things? The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So I'd love us to spend some time in this session trying to imagine the healing of the nations. Trying to imagine the day that is to come when the nations are fully healed. And we're going to be in Revelation 22, beginning at verse 1. Just five verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of God. Sorry. Historically, the church has thought about the eternal state. Sometimes people call it heaven. It's personally not my preferred word for it, um, because I think it can sound a bit too like it lacks physicality, but people often talk about what people call heaven or the eternal state in four overlapping ways. And I think I have a slide which will put these things up here, okay? Four overlapping ways of describing the eternal state. And different generations in the church have prioritized or emphasized different elements of this fourfold vision, depending on, and if you know a bit of church history, you might be able to say, oh yeah, well in the medieval period they were big on that one, but nowadays we're more here. But these four things are all, they're all true, right? And this is how people have conceptualized what I'm calling the healing of the nations, the renewal of all things. First of all, they talk about it in terms of the defeat of evil, the throwing down and final destruction and removal of everything that opposes God. They talk about the renewal of humanity, the transformation of human beings into incorruptible and sinless worshipers and priests and kings. I'm looking forward to that, right? I'm looking forward to all of it. Thirdly, they talk about often the beatific vision or the vision of blessedness. The idea that finally we will see the face of God in Christ. And we've talked about new creation. That is the liberation of this created order from the pain of labor, which is how Paul describes the age we're in now, labor pains, but liberating from the age of labor into glorious and abundant freedom. And those four images You could add others, I expect, but those four images I often use to describe the historical picture of the way the church has understood the new creation or the nature of the world to come. And all four of them feature in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. So what I'm going to do is just look at all four of those in Revelation 22 and hopefully help cast some kind of vision of what the world will one day be when the nations are healed. First, the defeat of evil comes in Revelation 22 particularly in verses 3 and 5. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed. Verse 5, it says, and night will be no more. One of the funny things about the way the Bible describes the new world is that it is repeatedly describing it in terms of what is not there. Okay, so let's move to that religious classic, Titanic. The very end of Titanic, everybody, sorry, if you don't, I don't know the movie, the boat sinks and everyone dies, basically. Sorry if that spoils it for you. And as it's sinking, the the priest guy is reciting Revelation 21, and it's a very famous passage, isn't it? He doesn't sound like he believes it, if you've seen the movie, and there will be no more death. He he thinks, he looks to me like he's pretty worried about the idea of there being death. But Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain anymore, 
for the former things have passed away. That's what the Bible often does. In the new world, all of these things that are evil will not be there. And one of the ways that the Bible writers try and help us imagine the healing of the nations is by describing the things that are not there. We notice that. It's commonly what happens. It's true in Isaiah a lot as well. Revelation as a book describes the throwing down and the destruction of all that is against God. Beasts and dragons and empires and cities, they all get destroyed and thrown away. And in a sense, therefore, the world is the world as we are now, but with all of the evil bits peeled away and thrown out. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Then all of the other enemies will be subdued under his feet, and then the last enemy, death, gets subdued as well. So it's one way the Bible pictures renewal, the healing of the nations, is to describe it as the overthrow of the enemies of God. And it's a good way of evoking a future. It's like what I just did, saying one day there will be a world without hospitals and needles and pills and anesthetics and American cheese and funerals and all the other things I mentioned. You think, so one of the things I'm trying to do in doing that is to help us realize that the world as we know it now is gonna be stripped clean of all of the things that oppose God, even if they seem to us to be unimaginable, the world seems to be unimaginable without them. C.S. Lewis does it a lot in the Narnia books. I love it when, you know, have you noticed, said Lucy, one can't feel afraid even if you try to. Try it in the new creation. She, kind of like, she said, you know, if you could run without getting tired, I don't think I'd ever want to do anything else. Lewis is good at that. He, in other words, right, imagine the world without lactic acid, without that horrible pain you get in here when you're running fast. Imagine a world in which there was no such thing as fear. It's so hard to, so it's the defeat of evil and the Bible often goes there to help us understand what the renewal of all things is like. And if you think about it, that's what healing is. Healing is the abolition of evil as applied to a very particular part of the world, namely the human person or whatever. Healing is the removal of a sickness, a virus, a cancer, an imperfection, a source of suffering or whatever it is. And so the healing of the world involves the removal of evil. One of the, my favorite texts on the problem of evil and the renewal of the world is Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov and you may know it's got one of the best statements of the problem of evil it is I think the best statement of the problem of evil ever written and but one of the things that the character who talks about the problem of evil says in the book his name is Ivan he's sort of the atheist in the story but he makes this amazing comment I want you to notice the words he uses he says I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood they've shed, that it will make it possible not only to forgive, but even to justify everything that's happened. Which is a wonderful statement of faith in the new world. Like, I believe, like, I cannot make sense of evil as we have it now, but I believe like a child that one day it's gonna be healed that the evil of the world will be defeated and thrown down forever. And that's what Revelation 22 says before us. There'll be no night. There'll be nothing accursed. You try and get anything with the curse in it, it's going to be thrown out. They will never be allowed into this beautiful garden city. So the healing of the nations involves the defeat of evil. It also involves the renewal of humanity, the making new of human beings. Verse 3, Revelation 22, verse 3, and his servants will worship him. Verse five, they will reign forever and ever. I know that in some senses I'm reigning now, but I don't often feel like I am much of the time. 
but I'm going to reign as a king and a priest and a servant and a worshiper for all eternity as a renewed person who never sins ever again. That's my future, and it's your future. And that, again, is, it's a key theme in Revelation that the, the whole of the human person is going to be renewed. In, in fact, in Revelation 21, there's a city of streets and gold and pearly gates and 12 types of jewels, and people often take that and apply it to the new world and say, look, the whole world will be filled with gold and pearls. But it's not a picture of the new world. It's a picture of the church. So then I saw the bride. I saw the new Jerusalem coming, and she was like this glorious city. It's not, just, it's not to say that the world is going to be made new, although it will. Actually, the picture of this glorious, spotless, perfect city is a picture of you guys and all of the saints who've gone before us and all of them all around the world, billions and billions of us made perfect and new by the work of Christ in the new creation. Come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. <laughs> like John is just going, wow, have you seen all this stuff? No death, no mourning, no crying. And the angel says, yeah, 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 don't get... Don't get distracted with all the layouts. Don't get distracted with the decorations and the wedding. Let me show you the bride, the wife. Let me show you the church, incorruptible, sinless, perfect forever. Humanity gets renewed. And central to the biblical vision of the future is the idea that the world can't be made perfect as long as there are sinful people still in it, bringing our shame and wickedness into an otherwise pristine world. So for the world to be healed requires sin to be healed. It requires human souls to be healed from sin. And that's exactly what God does, turning us into a spotless bride, a worshipping choir, a royal priesthood. That was something that captivated Augustine, or Augustine, as he reflected on the nature of the future city of God. Augustine wrote about this a lot. He was talking about the, the fact that the human person is going to be so healed that we don't even want to sin as one of the most astounding elements of the vision of the future that the Bible presents for us. He wrote this, the souls in bliss will still possess the freedom of the will, though sin won't have any power to tempt them. They will be more free than ever, so free in fact from all delight in sinning as to find in not sinning an unfailing source of joy. Sometimes people say, are you going to be free to sin in the new creation? And the answer Augustine gives is, I'm going to be so free, I'm not even going to want to sin. The idea won't even cross my mind. I will have been healed. I'm not just going to be healed from the fact that I don't get cancer anymore. Praise God for that. But I've got a much bigger vision of healing than that. I'm going to be healed from the desire to do anything that God doesn't want me to do. I'm never going to struggle with that again. And famously came up with this sort of four-part four way of thinking about the journey of the human race. He says, in the garden, we were able to sin. But then we fell, and we were not able not to sin. And then we got saved in Christ, and we became able not to sin. But one day, we will be not able to sin. That's, that's good theology, right? That's a good... Well, walk through it. In the garden, able to sin. You made the choice. Then you are not able not to sin. You're bound as a slave to sin. Then Christ redeems you and you become able not to sin. You can make good choices. You can please God by faith. But the day is coming when you and I will be not able to sin. I'm so grateful for physical healing. I am so glad that God has made my body to repair itself and that God has given common grace to doctors and that we have seen the power of healing prayer here and in my home and all over the world. 
And I'm looking forward to the physical healing of everything. I'll be able to hear in stereo. I'm deaf in this ear right now. Be able to hear in stereo. I'm never going to have pain again. I'm going to be able to have conversations with my daughter. I'm looking forward to physical healing. But you know what I really want to be healed from? Sin. I hate that stuff with all my heart. I hate the fact that I want to sin. I hate the fact that I can sin. I'm with Augustine. The renewal of humanity so that I never even want to sin again is unthinkably glorious and precious. And the healing of the nations does not just involve the defeat of evil. It involves the renewal of humanity so that you and I have souls that have been perfected to the extent we don't even want to do anything that doesn't honor the Lord. Now, I said it's the after lunch session, so I'm going to take a moment. And I'm just going to ask you to turn to the person next to you. You can stand if you like at this point, just to give yourself a bit, because after lunch, it's often good to just do a little thing. You can stand or sit. Just turn to the person next to you and say, I didn't, I'm, nothing about the last 20 minutes has excited me remotely about the future. Or you could perhaps say, that's something I'd just like to give a bit of time to think about. Just discuss anything, really. Two or three minutes. Just turn to the person next to you. What do you want to think more about there? What do you want to learn more about? What do you want to give God glory for? Whatever it may be. Okay? Okay, now do you have some physical interaction with that person? A high five, a hug, a handshake, whatever is appropriate. And then have a seat. Okay. So, the healing of the nations is going to involve the defeat of evil and the renewal of humanity. And it's going to involve the beatific vision, the vision of blessing or blessedness. And this is somewhere, again, Revelation 22. All of these things appear in Revelation 22, 1 to 5. Revelation 22, verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Revelation 22, verse 5. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. I think they're gonna, we are going to see his face. Now, at the center of the new world when, the world, when the nations get healed, at the center of the new world is a person and a face and a name. The world's going to get made new, and that is unspeakably wonderful. But it pales in comparison to seeing the face of God in Jesus Christ. So, when you get married... It's lovely to have a nice setting. Now, I got married, I'm, you know, I don't know, low church charismatic 15 years ago. I've, I've learned a bit since then, but I was very much like, no, buildings don't mean anything. So basically, our church is just a large biscuit tin on an industrial estate in southern England, right? It just huge square thing. No, no land, no style, no panache as a building at all. But we went, we just want to get married there. It's our church, so we did. And, but you try and make it look nice. You, you get the flowers and you get the whole thing. And lots of people come in beforehand and make the whole thing look nice. And even when you go to a really classy wedding with maybe very rich friends, they have this wonderful setting, a huge estate, and you can see for miles across the fields and the band's amazing and the food and champagne everywhere and all that. Even when those things are happening, there is something very inappropriate about a groom or a bride who gets so preoccupied about the trappings that those things become the highlights of their day. The highlight of the wedding day is supposed to be the moment when you see his or her face, right? So I, I, my, I loved my wedding. It was a great day. I was very, 15 years ago, had our anniversary a couple of weeks back. Really, 
wonderful day, lots of people I love, lots of nice things there, but it would be very odd and you would think it was somehow deficient in me if I had been going, oh, I just can't believe these flowers, I just can't, it's so lovely, I can't believe, you would think, hang on a second, the thing in this, the bit that did choke me, the bit that made me properly, I cry pretty easily really, so I'm quite an emotional person, but when, you, you know, you, you want to, do you ever do the thing at weddings where you look at the groom's face instead of where the bride is? Because it's just so much fun to watch this sort of guy who's like, I'm looking sharp, I'm feeling good, I'm powerful, I'm the man today. And then almost every single person is like, <laughs> like this when their bride is, because there's just something so moving about seeing her face. And you know, that's, many, that's the highlight of the whole thing for him. That's the reason why he's there. That's the reason why she's there. They want to, she wants to see his face. It's not about the stuff. It's about the face of the one you love and who loves you. And sometimes in our framing of the future, I would say in the medieval period, this was the big one. This is, they just talk about it all the time, the beatific vision. We're going to see God. Now they drew pictures of it and did some things that I don't think they should have done and all the rest, but in the end, their focus was so much on the face of God. What we can do if we're not careful is we can be so preoccupied with the fact God's gonna make everything new and it's gonna be so cool. You can jump off buildings, you're gonna be able to teleport. Isn't it gonna be great that we could lose sight of the fact that the thing that we are there to be moved by is Revelation 22 verse four. They will see his face, they will that's the bit that is going to make the world weep and think, glory to God, he's here. He's finally here. In the same way, all the wonderful things we read in Revelation 22, of all of them, there is, it's hard to think of any that outweigh those five words. They shall see his face. People have been waiting for that for thousands of years. Moses only got to see his back. Isaiah got a glimpse, but then had to call down woes on himself and hide. Ezekiel crumpled to the floor. Paul got blinded. Peter tried to make tents and it didn't go very well. One day we are gonna see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ fully revealed, no longer through a glass darkly, but face to face. I have a funny story about this. Not, not about the time I saw the glory of God. And I, yeah, I have a funny story about the broad principle. Um, my wife and I were around at a kind of posh friend's house. Um, it's posh, is that a word here? Yeah, upmarket, you know, richer than we are, a bit more classy and uh, hard to imagine, I know. I, mean, I keep getting people stopping me and saying, you're English, you just must be really both clever and really classy. I'm like, no, 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 that's, just, that's what everybody sounds like in my country, but it's very nice of you to say so. Um, but we're around this kind of quite, they are quite English, quite proper people. And we've been having drinks in the lounge, as you do, and then they say, oh, in a minute, we're, you know, it's nearly ready, we're gonna go through for dinner. And Rachel says, my wife, she says, oh, I, I just need to go to the loo. So she just goes off ahead of us, the, the, the restroom, whatever, okay, keep translating here in the English language. Um, and so she, <laughs> so she goes off ahead of us um, and we just stay and kind of finish our drinks or whatever and then follow through down to the hall. Now Rachel goes ahead and I'm switch the story now to what she experienced. She goes through into the toilet and obviously all toilets have either, they're either made of solid wood or they're made of frosted glass, which means that you are looking through a glass darkly, right? That's, that's what all loos do and rightly so because otherwise you can be seen. 
So Rachel doesn't even think about it. She goes through, just goes into the toilet, goes in, sits down, and is looking around thinking, oh, it's really nice to see everybody coming through for dinner. I'm really enjoying this. And then it suddenly hits her. She thinks, hang on a second. Why can I see them? What? And then she realizes, it suddenly hits her. As you get a second and a half of the horrible thoughts, like, I think they can see me. At which point, she realizes, I am not looking through a glass darkly. I am looking face to face. And our friend Mitchell saw it coming and realized, well, ah! and he just literally went, <laughs> like this to try and protect her modesty as she's just like 24 year old newly married woman just staring out like eyes like a bush baby with all of these guests coming in it was just like something out of 40 towers it was terrible and I like it because it illustrates so it's not a preacher story it's like that actually happened you could ask it but it, it actually vividly illustrates the difference in clarity between looking through frosted glass and seeing face to face and it helps me because I realize that all of the, when I encounter God in power, didn't you, there are moments, aren't there? Like, and I had one as we were singing a particular song last night in the, and the band were leading us. I just think, I am so aware of the presence of Jesus. I love him. Look at him. Isn't he glorious? And then I'm realizing Paul tells me, and Paul saw Jesus more clearly than I do. Paul saw him on the Damascus Road. And yet Paul says, oh, now it's like through frosted glass. You can barely see it. It's just a shadowy shape. I've got a vague idea. One day, it won't be that. I'll be able to see him face to face. They will see his face. Kenneth Graham in The Wind and the Willows describes Mole and the rats encountering the nature god, Pan. But the way he writes it, I just think is very evocative even when it comes to the... Some, in some ways, there are some similarities in the way it will be the seeing the face of God in Christ. And he says this, then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall all around him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy, but it was an awe that smote and held him, and without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. All this he saw for one moment breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky, and still as he looked, he lived, and still as he lived, he wondered. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, mole, I am afraid. It's a beautiful description of the nature of awe as it descends on seeing somebody you have long admired. And what does that have to do with healing? Simply this. The other aspects of future hope in Revelation 22 are about things that we are going to be healed from. But this one, seeing the face of God in Christ, that's what you and I are going to be healed for. The other things are things which are going to be removed and thrown out. I'm never going to sin again. There's never going to be any decay in creation again. Praise God for that. Those are things I'm healed from. But I am one day going to know what I was healed for, and I'm going to see his face. Have you ever seen those videos about people hearing for the first time? They're so powerful. If you just go on YouTube, you say healing for the first time, and you'll see the reaction of mothers when their three-year-olds hear for the first time cochlear implants, and it's so instantaneous. 
And just the whole family just is sobbing and just they cannot believe what's happening. And sometimes adults for the first time hearing, it may have happened to one of you, I don't know. And you just felt overwhelmed with emotion. When that happens, they are not tears of convenience. They're not like, this is gonna make my life so much easier. I'm not gonna have to do this or that or the other. They're not tears of convenience. They're tears of intimacy. I can hear their voice. I can know them. I can be known as I am fully known. And on that day, it's not going to be the fact that, oh, wow, the world is easier to navigate now. Oh, it's nice we don't have to die anymore. Oh, it's nice we can teleport. I'm glad we can. Praise God for that. But that's not why I'm going to be celebrating. I will be celebrating not out of convenience, but out of intimacy that I will be able to see his face. The healing of the nations. And finally, the healing of the nations involves new creation. And this is verses 1 to 2 of Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So there's a crystal river flowing from the throne. If you know Revelation well, you'll know that earlier on in the book, it wasn't a crystal river, it's a crystal sea surrounding the throne. So the throne is here, surrounded by a crystal sea, but what we're now seeing is as if someone has punched a hole in the crystal sea and the crystal water is now flowing out from the throne out to water the world. Life-giving water is flowing out into creation and giving it life. And the river of God's presence flows through the city, the church, and it's bordered by the tree of life which produces a different kind of fruit every month because it's that abundant, and it can. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Salt water turns fresh. There are streams, and by the way, don't worry, surfers, about the line that says there was no longer any sea. Okay? Don't worry. It doesn't mean that there is going to be no water. It means that there's going to be the force of the sea in the turbulent chaos that is trying to overthrow God, which is what it often symbolizes in the Bible. That's going to be stilled. Ezekiel 47 says the salt water is going to turn fresh. (laughs) Imagine that. You can go surfing and you're not even going to feel sticky and salty afterwards. Amen. Shalom. So, salt water turns fresh. There are streams in the wilderness. The desert blossoms like a crocus. These are the, the ways in which the prophets try and evoke the transformation and renewal of creation. The bondage to decay in which creation is currently bound, according to Romans 8, will get lifted. Right? I don't know if you've been to a part of creation, and you probably have because you live in a country with more beautiful national parks than anywhere else. And so you've probably been to, I don't know, a Yosemite or a Yellowstone or Shenandoah or somewhere. And with the greatest respect, probably not necessarily Oklahoma City, although you may feel that here as well. But where you've seen it, just thought, I don't understand how there can be so much beauty in one vista. Now, for me, I, I went on honeymoon to Samoa, right, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and I went snorkeling. I'd never done snorkeling before, and as I went under the water, I just, I, I literally, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe the colors of the creatures that God had made and had left swimming around in the ocean, really unseen by most human beings for a very, very long time. And as I was swimming, surrounded by these electric blues and purples, I, I just kept having to surface and say to Rachel, I just don't believe this thing exists. How is there so much beauty in this world? In the Amazon, there are 300 species of tree in every acre. There are 300 species of other plants in every acre. In other words, there's 600 different plant species per acre. And Paul says, oh, that's creation in decay. 
That's creation under a curse. That is because of all of the things that have taken place at the start of the biblical story, there is something of a tarpaulin thrown over creation. That means that creation is now in labor pains. It's like a woman saying, I want to get out this new world from inside myself, but it's anguish and agony, which is why there's all of this death and frustration and decay and bondage. I want to get out the new life, and then when the new life comes, I'll be able to lift it up in front of you all, and we can celebrate new has come out from within the middle of the old. And Paul's saying, the world you see now, the Amazon, the Yosemite, the Yellowstone, Samoa, wherever it is for you, Tuscany, whatever it might have been that you've seen and you've thought, how is this possible that God has made something of that beauty? And Paul's saying, oh, that's creation in decay. And one day, creation should be freed from that decay. And how big are the sequoias going to be then? How many species of fish are there going to be then? How glorious are waterfalls and waves going to look then? It's new creation the healing of the nations. The image of a river bordered by the tree of life on both sides, that obviously takes us back to Genesis 2. But in Eden, there were four rivers and two trees. Here, there's only one river and only one tree and only one city. All of the goodness of the original world has been condensed into simply one. There's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil anymore. It's gone. The renewal of creation has obviously involved also the defeat of evil and the renewal of humanity. And so it's an Eden image, but it's also, it's a funny one. The, the idea of a river with a tree, on, tree of life on both sides takes us back to Ezekiel 47. Sorry to skip back, you don't have to turn there. But in Ezekiel 47, the picture to me makes more sense than this one. This, the picture of the idea of a river with the tree of life on both sides is odd. What I can understand is that Ezekiel 47 says, on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. So I'm, say, paddling down the river, or because I'm from Britain, punting down the river, and there's trees on both sides producing fruit and leaves for healing. And I think, yeah, I can see that. Trees on both sides, that's what happens on rivers. But here in Revelation 22, it says something much stranger. It says on either side of the river, the tree of life. I think, what, what could you possibly be imagining? I can't imagine paddling down a river and having one tree on both sides of a river. That makes no sense. You ever thought about that? You ever worried? And ever even wondered, why has John adapted Ezekiel's picture in that weird way? And I think the answer is that John wants us to see that we are not just surrounded by life-giving trees. We are surrounded on all sides by the life-giving tree, the tree of life on which the Prince of Glory died, which now feeds the world with fruit and heals the nations. In Luke's gospel, it's always called a cross. In the book of Acts, it's always called a tree. Same person wrote both books. Why did he change it? Because it's no longer a piece of dead wood. This tree bears fruit, and this leaves bring healing. It is a tree of life. And on either side of the river, the tree of life. Everywhere you looked, the impact of the cross of Christ, renewing all things, providing fruit every month, and whose leaves heal the nations. Brothers and sisters, we're here because we want to see more healing in our world and more of the power of the age to come to break into the present. I assume that's why you're here. But even beyond that, we look forward to something far greater. We look forward to the healing of the nations the tarpaulin of death, the covering cast over all peoples in Isaiah 25 will be swallowed up forever. 
evil in all of its forms will be banished permanently and we will never sin or even want to again. Creation, which is currently groaning in labor pains and crying out for gas and air, will be liberated into the glorious freedom of the children of God and the tree of life, the cross of Jesus Christ, will bring healing to everybody, every heart and every soul, at which point you and I, with billions and trillions of others, will see his face. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, we look for the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Haste the day, Lord. Maranatha, haste the day. May your kingdom come. May the day come when your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. May these things, these beautiful abolition of evil, the renewal of the human soul, the renewal of the world, and seeing you. May those things break in now more and more, but Lord, haste the day when you return and bring them all fully and finally to come to pass. May we minister and serve people around us by seeing as much of that kingdom come now as you have ever be pleased to give, but Lord, even on those days when you don't, we look for the coming of your kingdom. We will not let go of that future hope in which the nations all get healed. We can't wait and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridgeway Podcast, where you will find a new conversation every Thursday. For more information about Bridgeway Church, we invite you to visit bridgewaychurch.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BridgewayOKC, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash bridgewaychurchOKC. If you have any questions that you would like us to address on the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at bridgewaychurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast app as it helps other people like you find our program. So on behalf of all the pastors and staff here at Bridgeway Church, I'm David Bowden saying thanks for listening and we will see you next week.